it is basically like having a finger on on a nuclear button and you know kind of tickling it constantly more wiser podcast alexander moore climate and health scientist now this idea of taking a core sample at the climate change institute you've really perfected this method of pulling a piece of a an ice sample out of a glacier and analyzing it in what you've said is a non-destructive manner. So you can keep that sample for a, a really long time. And I do want to pick your brain in your TED talk. You said, I won't, I won't bore you with the details, but I'm going to, I'm going to pin you down to ask you about the details and how you're able to, with a laser, laser ablation technique, how you're able to do that and still maintain that sample for, I would imagine, tens of years for other scientists to look at. First of all, I should say that I did not invent this. Uh, this was invented uh, and, and perfected by Paul Majewski, Sharon Sneed, and uh, uh, Mike, Mike Handley, uh, Andrei Kurbatov, and many others uh, at the Climate Change Institute, who are, uh, in my opinion, the top climate scientists in the world, and particularly uh, the top experts in this particular area. I was lucky enough to and I am still lucky enough to work with them uh, now going on 10 years. So so the ice core, of course, is a cylinder of ice that you dig out of a glacier. Uh, you have a, a tube-looking drill that, that's put on top of a glacier, and three feet at a time, you pull out the ice from the glacier. It's very, very difficult work. It requires expeditions in remote areas, uh, dangerous areas. And then it requires that you take uh, 210 feet of, in this, in, in our case, of ice back to your home institution, to your university or institute. And you know, uh, you know that one kilo, uh, one, uh, um, you know, a cube of ice that's uh, that's got a, a a side of 10 centimeters uh, is weighs a kilo, which is uh, two pounds. So multiply that. That's a lot. By 72 meters, uh, this is not light. Um, so this, the ice is then stored in a refrigerated area in at the Climate Change Institute that's constantly refrigerated. And so unlike other ice cores where in the past they melted the entire core and you didn't have anything left, uh, you would analyze it as it was melted and then you had nothing left. In this case, because we're losing a record of climate change, we're losing the glaciers because of climate change. The Climate Change Institute has shifted its approach to preservation uh, of the ice forever, uh, so that uh, you know you can use the the old methods and melt the ice, but the new method actually doesn't melt the ice. And this new method that I uh, mentioned during the TED Talk essentially uses a laser to melt a very, very thin layer at the top of the ice core. So you basically feed the ice core through the machine and the laser uh, melts uh, one micron deep, uh, 10 micron wide, uh, groove, if you will, in in the ice, so you barely can see it with your naked eye, and the vapor. Uh, so it's it, the, the the ice goes from solid to to gas, right? 
that's called sublimation. If you ever seen, um, if you have ever used um, dry ice for shipping or anything, or even to make a fun cocktail at Halloween, you actually have seen sublimation, right? So you, uh, dry ice is CO two that is uh, frozen, and it goes from um, frozen to gas in a really cool, smoky way. Um, in uh, as you as you are watching it. Uh, so essentially, the laser does the same thing to the ice core. It brings it from solid to air to gas instantaneously. It doesn't go through liquid. And because the machine is in a vacuum, uh, the gas is sucked out of where it's melted and brought into uh, a mass spectrometer. And the mass spectrometer essentially is a machine that tells you what's in a sample. Uh, pretty much any chemistry lab in the world uh, that can call itself such has a mass spectrometer of some kind. It's one of the many ways we have to figure out what's in uh, a sample, but a uh, mass spectrometer is very good at this. Uh, when I started in college, I, I used to use nuclear magnetic resonance, which is a lot more complicated to use. Uh, you need huge machines, ma magnets, the same magnets that you go for an MRI, same, same system. Mass spectrometer is, is cheaper, uh, but not by much. <laughs> uh, and and uh, it gives you a different, a different accuracy and uh, uh, it's more reliable. And so this mass spectrometer basically tells you, okay, what's in the ice at any given time. So you feed the ice through. Uh, imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen those uh, bagel machines where you put the bagel in and it goes in and it gets oh, yeah. toasted. Yep. Okay, so you, imagine that you're uh, putting a, a, an ice core through the bagel machine and you know, it goes through and there is, instead of the toaster, you got a laser that lasers oh, cool. it as you go through. Again, again, three feet at a time, usually, because that's what the sections of the ice core are. That's the length. And as you do that, you're going back in time, uh, right? So uh, as the bagel machine advances, uh, the laser is going back in time, back in time, back in time. And on the screen, you see uh, a graph of all the things that were on the ice uh, going back in time. And so basically, you're, it is... Uh, uh, rudimentary, uh, um, not rudimentary, actually, uh, it, it's a, um, a partial view of what was in the past in the air. Um, it, it's not rudimentary at all. What I meant was it's kind of simple, simpler uh, than, you know, we, we can't capture everything, but we capture, we can capture up to, I think, 25 different elements that are in the air, including toxic elements, which we we, we, we really are interested in because uh, often toxic elements are associated with human uh, activity. So with industry and so this, this system was invented at the Climate Change Institute. It, it's currently active there. Uh, it's been applied to a few projects, a few uh, projects, a few uh, sites that have had that have yielded ice cores, uh, produced ice cores. I know that uh, we've used it for the Alps in Italy uh, and Switzerland. We've used it for Antarctica and we've used it for uh, another site in Central Asia. When you get back to the 210 foot mark, how far back are you looking? 
Uh, I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty far. I can tell you how, how much more. So I, I, it's not published yet. We can look farther than uh, 2,500 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. In, that, in this particular case uh, the, of the Alpine core from uh, the Swiss Italian Alps, farther than 2,500 years. I, I, I would tell you more, but um, honestly, we are still working on the data. Um, there is one study that showed the uh, radiocarbon dates because we can also get radiocarbon dates. Radiocarbon is a way to essentially tell the age of something. So it's another way for us to compare and correlate, like you said before, basically um, prove to ourselves that we're not inventing things and that, uh, in fact, uh, the record goes as far back as we think. And uh, that one study showed at least 2,500 years before the present. What's the variability like in one of these samples? I mean, do you have to have multiple cores and average them against each other, or are they pretty... Uh, is the layering pretty homogenous throughout an entire glacier? No, the layer is not homogenous uh, because, as you can imagine, it's a very good question, by the way. Uh, as you can imagine, the um, how much ice is deposited on a glacier at any given time is very much dependent on the weather uh, of any given year. So you'll have years when you have more snow, and so a thicker layer for that year and years when you have less snow and uh, so a, a thinner layer. Uh, we don't actually look at the snow per se uh, or ice per se as, as a layer, uh, although in, in some cases you can actually see the layers uh, year by year, even with the naked eye. Uh, what we look at is a chemical signature. In fact, multiple chemical signatures that show us periodic uh, things that happen every year and can tell you, you know, this is a, this is a year mark. So imagine that you have, you know, uh, a, a sandstorm every year in June. And so that sandstorm will deposit on the glacier and when, uh, and, and then it gets trapped in the ice. So next year you have the same sandstorm in June, and again the, the sand is, gets deposited on the glacier and trapped in the ice. So you can actually see the sand chemically. Sand is made of aluminum, iron, calcium, uh, silicon, and so you can detect all of that, and that allows you to count the layers uh, back. And that is still the gold standard of uh ice cores and how ice cores are dated essentially uh, and w the person who did this at first for our project is a swiss german uh scientist who is currently at the university of venice his name is pascal boliber uh, and he is one of the most precise people i know <laughs> so i i I am absolutely convinced that the, that our dating is correct because uh, he did it, um, and uh, he's he's really remarkable. And the other person that did it also was uh, Nicole Spaulding at the Climate Change Institute. And I've heard you say you can get a resolution of I think three hundred points per year to understand yeah. almost on a daily basis what's happening. Does that get less refined as you go back in time? Do they start to blur? 
It does a bit, yeah. So uh, it it depends on on the I score, of course. Uh, each I I'm not a glaciologist, uh, although I play one on TV. No, I actually am not a glaciologist. Uh, the the person to explain this to you better is Paul Majewski, who uh, is the director of the Climate Change Institute. But I will repeat uh, what I have learned, and that is that essentially, like everywhere. Uh, uh, you know, if you add more ice on top of ice, the ice below will compress. When it gets compressed uh, over years and years and years um, and centuries, really, uh, the the thickness of each layer is also compressed. And you can only get so many data points out of a layer. You know, if you, again, think about the bagel machine and it's moving at the same speed uh, for every for every layer, we don't change the speed. Uh, so when the laser hits the layer, uh, it, it will only have so much time to produce data, right, for that layer. And so I think as if we go farther than 2000, 2000 years, uh, we go about to about 200 data points per year or a little less. Um, we can, in fact, actually laser more slowly. It's an incredibly time-consuming process, however, and it also we 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 don't do it that often because it it means matching different data with you know that has essentially a different resolution, and that it's it's essentially like a zoom. So you can you can laser more slowly and produce more data. Whether it's going to be better data, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, we have we have we have tried, and sometimes we have succeeded in getting better data. It's you know it, 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 this this system is only about eight nine years old, and the data is only eight or nine years old. And as we have produced it, and we produce different kinds and different resolutions uh 300 data points per year 200 data points per year sometimes more we have also had to basically learn a completely new language how to read this data that before we didn't before we had one data point per year you were lucky 10 data points per year you were really going uh you know you really had something and this is where the old the old uh, systems you know gave you about uh, melted the, the ice core and gave you about 10, maybe sometimes 20 or 30. So it, it's essentially going from, you know, reading English uh, to reading a completely different language that you've never read before that has in a sentence about 100 times more information. So imagine, you know, one, sen- one simple sentence, subject, verb, object, and then multiply the information you get from that sentence a hundred times and that's what we've been looking at <laughs> so it it's it's a new ball game so then when major earth events happen concurrently is it hard then on you as a researcher to decipher 
what actually impacted what. Because I, I read one of your papers on Saharan dust events, mm-hmm. and some of those overlapped with the time period of World War One, which was relative to your talk and the, the mm-hmm. Spanish flu. So how can you tell what caused what in the data? Chemicals generally can tell you enough. So um, Saharan dust is made, if you've ever been to Sahara or you've seen a photo, it's red. And that's because there's a lot of iron in it iron rusts so uh you know uh rust is a uh, iron oxide it's, it's oxidation so if you look at rust you look at the sahara kind of the same color so if you find a lot of iron coming through uh in addition to silicon in addition to uh, aluminum then you know that that's a dust event that's coming from the sahara and we have basically um nailed down a fairly clear a combination of kind of a signature uh, for the Saharan dust. And the expert on this is uh, uh, Heather Clifford, who is now at Boston University and published that article that you um, read. And so we, we know she has actually published the highest resolution Saharan dust record on the planet for, for from our high school. So, um, we know we, we can we can actually distinguish different events uh, in the ice core based on their chemical composition. We can distinguish volcanic eruptions, for example, very easily. Uh, not only because there is a marked sulfur component, right? So there's a lot of sulfur in the ice, a lot of maybe bismuth, uh, sulfuric acid sometimes, uh, or sulfate. Uh, you can find that in the ice core. And we have multiple different ways to detect those, but you can also find, uh, I, you know, you can also confirm a volcanic eruption by looking at these little particles of uh, an eruption that get deposited on in the ice. These are microparticles called tephra, which is basically, you know, uh, a chemical, uh, a, mi- a microchemical particle that's been frozen by the, the, the volcanic eruption. So uh, imagine there are all these chemicals flo- floating around in the, in the volcano uh, come from the earth. And when the eruption occurs, they get frozen by the heat into a, a first mixed and then frozen by the temperature in the atmosphere into a, a, a microparticle um, that then travels through the air and then uh, it falls to the ground. And if it falls into an ice core, then it gets captured again, like a, a time capsule of that eruption. And you can find these things, uh, you know, analyzing the ice core very carefully, chemically. And, and we actually published an article on an, an eruption that uh, we found uh, in our ice core from um, from uh, uh, from the Swiss Italian Alps, and this was the first uh, tephra particle that is volcanic particle uh, from an Icelandic volcano that was detected in a European ice core. Uh, the author on that was Matthew Luongo, who is currently a Scripps uh, Institute of Oceanography doing his PhD. He published it as a Harvard undergraduate. So there's so much data, aside from what's coming out of these ice cores, but that you're matching with other analyses going on in other parts of the world. 
where does that get combined? Is there like a master database house at like a, a climate institute or? I wish, I wish. So, um, so the Climate Change Institute publishes all their data uh, on a couple of different websites. Um, but, you know, usually, you know, it, it, it's rare that you can see a global event in multiple I-scores uh, or a local event in multiple I-scores, rather. Occasionally, you will see global events in multiple I-scores. And um, I think that one of the best examples of this is the first uh, major project on I-scores that really put I-scores in the on the map for the public uh, knowledge. And those are the Greenland I-score uh, projects um, directed by um, Paul Majewski. GISP, GISP2 is known, uh, you know, it's, it's known as GISP2. And those, um, you know, they can give you really global uh, coverage of, you know, they can give you a global picture of what's going on. Um, very, very big trends over centuries. Um, Antarctic, a similar, uh, similar project in Antarctica, uh, the ITAS project, also directed by Paul Majewski, uh, International Transantarctic uh, Scientific Expedition. That's the uh, acronym. I don't know the GISP, actually. <laughs> I don't remember it correct all. They um, so you they also produced uh, ice scores that give you global uh, pictures of what's going on in the past in terms of climate and pollution. Uh, smaller ice scores, more localized ice scores that don't go as far uh, or have a specific, um, you know, a very specific uh, geographic area like the Swiss Italian uh, ice score. Uh, they may have uh, signals regarding uh, global events. For example, I, I, we've been looking at uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation, which um, I'm not going to go into details of, but essentially covers all of the North Atlantic. And that's because, you know, wind blows west to east mostly. And so you can pick up everything that goes from northwest to the southeast uh, in, in Europe on this ice core. But you don't see the the whole big, um, you know, what's going on in China. Maybe, but you know, it's downwind. It's difficult to to know whether what you're looking at is, uh, in fact, something that's happening in China. So your question was, how do you compare all of these things? We do compare them all, but it's not the easiest thing. Uh, all of these I scores are at different resolution. Re resolution is basically how many data points per day or per year or per month can you have? And if you only have, you know, one data point per year from Antarctica and you have 300 per year from Switzerland, uh, you got to bring the Switzerland down to Antarctica. Uh, otherwise, you can't correlate anything. And so you lose a lot of information that way. And um, it's, you know, it, it's like uh, having a microphone in front of a conversation that lasted an hour, but you only hear one second. And, uh, you know, what, what kind of information is that? Uh, you can average it all, and we do. Um, but... In the end, uh, you, ideally, you want to compare apples and apples uh, rather than apples and oranges. 
and that takes uh, a lot of statistical knowledge and and care and we do that uh we have scientists particularly climate change institute who are excellent at this um but I think as we as we go forward in time and and uh, the climate change institute's later system is going to be uh, copied, exported uh, out because all all of its plans, all of its uh, are public. Um, oh wow! Then you know we'll have a better chance of doing this. In the past, when you have low, low when you had lower resolution ice cores from all over the world. Uh, from different labs, different places, people did, in fact, compare uh, lower resolution, lower resolution. And, and um, they did find some major global events in all ice cores. Uh, for example, a little ice age uh, period between 1350 and 1800, when the temperature globally dropped um, uh, by a, a few degrees. That's detectable in multiple ice cores. But... You know, uh, it, 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 is there a database where all this stuff is uh, located? No. Uh, the best thing uh, that we have, uh, besides, of course, you know, the single labs, single institutes providing their data, and there aren't that many. Um, the Climate Change Institute is really an exception in this. Uh, they put all their data out. Uh, Harvard also, and the project that I uh, directed. But um, you know, the best other thing we have is uh, the National Oceanic Administ- Atmospheric Administration um, Paleoclimate Search Engine, uh, which is one of the best things that the U.S. federal government runs. And although sometimes a little uh, difficult to operate uh, for the average user, not for the scientists, it, it is incredibly powerful. But the data that's on that I, um, on that uh, search engine is only as good as the scientists uh, want it to be. So scientists may upload uh, data onto that search engine and website, but not all scientists are going to upload their best data, particularly if it's not published, because you know it's a lot of years of work. And until it's fully published, they want uh, to exploit their work for publication before it actually is made public. And even sometimes when it's, it is published, some people don't like to share data. So they make it, they upload it in uh, files that are basically un, unreadable for 99.9% of other people. And so the data is not available for everybody to read. And basically, you know, you, you just, you know, you, you, you have checked that check mark. You've checked that box where, uh, yes, I did upload my data. Can, is it usable? No. Uh, one of the major, I think, and this is important to say, one of the greatest things that the Biden administration has done is that the NSF mandated that the NSF and all the other agencies, the fund projects also mandate that the scientists who receive that, that those funds have to make their science public. Interesting. So their data now has to be public uh, upon publication or upon the end of the project, and it has to be usable. And that is an enormous step forward. Uh, when I started graduate school, 
uh, I remember years and years ago, I assumed that all the, all the data that you, you know, if you, <laughs> I, I was, I, I'm used to honesty. So, you know, uh, yes, I published something, obviously I got to show you my work. So here's all the data. Right. And it was one of the greatest surprises of my career when I, as a, you know, young, uh, 20 something year old learned that, no, you don't really have to show any work. You could wow. just, uh, you could just basically put the figures up there and publish the article and say, yes, I did that. Uh, but there was no data attached to most of the articles. So I'm like, well, what if somebody's were just really good at Photoshop? <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> I don't understand. So now we have to put the data out there. And again, you know, you can fudge the data too if you if you want to. And there are certainly people who are doing that. Um, and there are studies of those fudged uh, um, articles. And but by and large, scientists are honest people. And uh, I found, you know, and usually if you want something, you just ask the scientist and. Uh, at least in this continent, people are fairly generous and will share. Uh, I won't say about, uh, <laughs> I won't speak <laughs> to other, other nations, but in this continent so far, the experience has been good. So as a climate scientist or any really scientist nowadays, you really have to be almost a statistician and a little bit of computer scientist in order to, to parse this data. Mm -hmm how much of the onus is on you as an individual versus where you're getting help from like a third party at your institute to help you do that? I, I mean, this is how, how studies have changed over time, right? Uh, and before, if you had three or four, if you had three or four authors for an article um, before, I mean, you know, 1970s, 1980s, uh, you had three or four authors for an article that was already a lot. And now, you know, an article with eight, nine, 10, 15 authors is completely uh, acceptable because everybody does their little piece for a study. And so you have the statistician. And, and, and you know, if you're working particularly in public health, where I also work, um, you have an entire department dedicated to uh, biostatistics, which is part of public health. Uh, all of which is, you know, th there's an entire discipline uh, because it really requires people to acquire a certain skill set that um, is is really all-consuming. All uh, and some of the best biostatisticians in the world are the best, or rather some of the best public health scientists in the world are biostatisticians uh, by training. Uh, I have a colleague at UMass Boston who is a biostatistician. Uh, I have a colleague at Harvard uh, who is probably the most prominent biostatistician now. I'm not going to give names because when you say most prominent, people say uh, I don't agree. Uh, but um, so the, 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 the skill is really finding the right people for your team, for the question that you are uh, trying to answer as in everything, uh, that's, that's leadership. It's, it's, uh, you know, really where the, where the leading scientists, uh, scientists or scientists, sometimes there are more than one really show their skill in bringing together a group of people that can really work together. 
And so, yes, we have experts in statistics uh, in my project, uh, my multiple projects, actually. And we also have experts in glaciology and experts in volcanology and experts in uh, history and archaeology and um, public health. That would be me. Uh, and all of these people learn from each other and, you know, speak slightly different languages, but really we all, you know, try to, to put things in, in as simple terms as possible so that everybody can follow along. And, you know, sometimes these people have PhDs in completely different disciplines. Uh, one could be glaciology, another one could be biostatistic, another one could be archaeology, another one could be um, uh, something completely different. And the, I think the beauty of science is that we actually don't require the party card. Uh, oh, you're not a glaciologist. You can't be part of our group. No. Uh, you come in and you bring your skills that we need, and I bring my skills, and together we all complement each other. And there's a large responsibility then placed on folks like you and the ones who are assessing that data because with a new finding like the one you published recently that, you know, there is a direct correlation between climate change and the impact on an epidemic mm -hmm. or even starting an epidemic or how badly it can get. And so is there any sort of pressures that you feel in your role that you're you know, really linking these two together, which for a long time, I think we kind of thought they might be tied to, but now you're actually proving it with data. Is there any sort of uh, stress that goes along with these large findings that you end up publicizing? Um, stress. I think the major stress is always um, coming from your colleagues really, uh, oddly, it's odd to say, but it's true. Uh, for, for those of us that who work in, in, uh, research in universities, um, in peer reviewed research, you know, reputation is all we got. And so, you know, publishing something means that you are joining that conversation and you want everyone who reviews your data and and publishes your data to respect your findings and <clears throat> if they stop respecting your findings then you've lost your your role in in this uh um big family that we call science uh with regard to the public generally the points that we make uh the big points you know climate influences pandemics are simpler than the things that we can get hung up on in you know among experts uh they're simpler and they are proven multiple times by multiple data sets as in my in the case of the spanish flu uh article and so there's less pressure for me at least uh i i'm, I'm more secure uh, um, in, in arguing those uh, points because I've made sure that they are right in three, four, or five different ways. The minute details, the more minute details where a, a scientist can actually catch you, that's, I think, where we're all 
oh gosh, I put that arrow the wrong way, you know, and, and uh, this is actually a true story. I, I put an arrow in the wrong, the wrong direction in an article back 11 years ago. Really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> somebody found it six years later. Oh, by the way, that error is the wrong, the wrong direction. I'm like, damn it. Uh, to, to be fair, uh, we were a version 25 of the figures, and there were about 15 figures, and I was responsible for all of them. So I was a little, a little tired uh, at the time. I was also trying to finish my dissertation. But um, so, you know, that's really the nightmare for us, I think, as scientists. And perhaps that's, it's the opposite of what it should be, right? We should be worried about what the public is going to think. Um, but in general, I found, and I do at least, you know, one third of my effort goes toward outreach and speaking to media and working with media. And uh, I, I found that journalists are incredibly generous people, um, that they're respectful, um, that they're actually genuinely curious. Uh, I love working with journalists. I mean, I, I think it, they're, they're, they're um, you know, by and large, uh, the ones who are actually doing journalism and not, you know, uh, punditry or that sort of stuff are really the, the protectors of the democracy, protectors of the truth. And um, this, I have seen them apply the same kind of rigor to fact-finding that, I, that we apply in the lab. And I have enormous respect for that. So I, um, I find it very help, very comforting to work with journalists because they ask questions like you that are, um, you know, uh, the word would be perspicacious, uh, which is kind of, I love that word, but nobody knows what it means. Uh, you know, they're, they're like in, in insightful questions that you haven't thought about and, uh, they bring you out into the real world. Uh, well, why does this matter? So what? And and I think we should all have, always have that in mind when we write our articles or even our grants. So um, I don't. I think I get over the pressure that there may be or the stress that there may be associated with some of the findings um, for the public because I enjoy so much talking about the science and the discoveries with, uh, the public. And so the, the paper that we've both referenced, you're, you're diving into climate change and the impact on the, the Spanish flu. And then you talk in your Ted talk about, um, the, the accelerating temperature increases going on in the globe right now. And you mentioned the easiest thing we can do to prevent the next pandemic is to prevent wildlife trade. You said, if you take anything away from this talk, which there's a lot to take away from, you want it to be that. Could you extrapolate more on the wildlife trade piece? Definitely. Um, so it, most of the diseases that exist on this planet, bacterial or viral, are not known to us, really. Um, they exist in wild places. And most of the diseases that we are familiar with from the last 50 years that have been a pandemic of some kind, AIDS, HIV, AIDS, for example, or uh, Zika, or uh, dengue fever, or Ebola, or, you know, I can go on and on and on, including uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. All of those, uh, I should say, 
SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, COVID-19 is the disease. All of those diseases come from animals without fail. They come from the wild. And this is not to say don't go into the wild. You shouldn't actually go bother animals. But uh, yeah, I enjoy nature. I'm in, in nature every day with my dog. Uh, I spend three, three hours in the woods or on the beach or somewhere uh, with my dog every day. Uh, it's the, my favorite part of the day. I look forward to it more than anything else. Uh, yeah, I take precautions. But wildlife trade is is the entire opposite of taking precautions. It is uh, basically like having a, a finger, you know, on on a nuclear button and you know, kind of tickling it constantly. Um, because what you're doing is you're taking wild animals that live in a wild place that you don't, you haven't explored, haven't been exposed to, and bringing them into the human environment and without precautions of any kind. Uh, and there aren't, sometimes there aren't enough precautions to ensure that you don't get infected. You are either uh, using those animals as pets or they're, you're using those animals as food or using those animals for, um, you know, killing them to, to, uh, for, for leather bags or worse, you know, fake medical solutions to various insecurities that, uh, people have. And that is just so dangerous because those animals carry their diseases that they're used to and that their, their immune system is used to into your environment. So an animal, just like us, you know, an animal carries viruses, bacteria that is in or her environment have and that they're exposed to every day. So in our noses and our throats, we have viruses, bacteria that are kept under control, uh, even in our gut that are kept under control by our immune system that is trained to, to do that. If we expose somebody to our breath, our, our saliva, our, even our, our sweat, to those diseases, and that somebody has never been, imagine that it's a bubble boy. I don't know if you remember the Seinfeld episode. Uh, and, and you go and expose bubble boy to one of those diseases, that person will catch the disease, right? They, they, if they, their immune system is not trained to fight it, They'll catch the disease. This is a, a real a life example of this is when um, Europeans, particularly, or North Americans go into uh, the Amazon and find an uncontacted tribe, a tribe that's never met one of us, uh, one, you know, uh, Europeans. or uh, And so they've never been exposed to our uh, bacteria and viruses that we carry, even though we're not sick. You can carry bacteria and viruses and not be sick, right? They die 24 hours later. Wow. Yeah. Right. So that's, this is, this is, if you meet an uncontacted member of a, a member of an uncontacted tribe, chances are that person is going to get sick after you speak to them, uh, you know, close, close, uh, in close proximity are high. And it's the same with, with wild animals. You bring, uh, uh, a wild animal into, the our environment that animal is used to the, the 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 bacteria and viruses that are in its environment 
but we are not. And when we go and eat it, uh, you know, maybe it's not cooked well, or even, you know, maybe the bacteria survived the, the, the cooking or, uh, then we are exposed to those bacteria and viruses and we are likely to catch those, um, you know, the diseases associated with those, uh, pathogens, with those bugs. So wildlife trade is the worst thing we can do for, uh, the global public health, because we are essentially, as I said, you're, you're tickling a nuclear button, essentially. Uh, every time you bring in a, a, an animal from the wild, you're taking the chance that that animal has some virus or some bacterium that the, the global population is not equipped to, uh, fight. At that point, you have a patient zero. And then if it is uh, uh, transmissible from human to another human, or maybe that virus, uh, if it's a virus, it will evolve to very fast to be transmissible, then you have an epidemic and uh, you may also have a pandemic because today, you know, basically every epidemic becomes a pandemic fairly quickly uh, due to air travel. So that is why wildlife trade, and by the way, most wildlife trade is legal. Uh, the illegal wildlife trade is a tiny part of it. Um, we, we, you know, the wildlife trade is, uh, is uh, regulated by international treaty, uh, CITES. Um, you might have heard that name. It's an agency essentially that, that you know, regulates wildlife trade. Um, most of it is legal. The illegal uh, is not even controlled by CITES. It's, it's, you know, there should be um, agencies in the UN that actually look after this, but it, it doesn't have, it's not on the top priority of uh, most governments. Uh, it has shot up in the priority list in many major con- uh, developed countries, but not enough. Um, th- it should be completely banned. It should be prosecuted the way we prosecute um, drug trade. Because it's way more dangerous than the drug trade. Uh, and, of course, it's destroying the biodiversity. I'm making the human argument, of course. You know, this, this is the most dangerous thing for humans. Uh, but, uh, the uh, you know, it's, it's destroying the biodiversity. Uh, we've lost several species to extinction before because of wildlife trade, rhinos particularly. But, you know... Um, so on top of habitat destruction, we and we are also destroying various other species because, you know, uh, a few people believe that having the swim bladder from a certain fish makes you look rich in your house or, you know, having, um, having, uh, a, a gorilla paw as an ashtray, it makes you look rich to your friends or, you know, eating whale meat, uh, makes you look rich to your friends. Um, it also makes you sick. Uh, most of these things make you sick, but you know, it's, it's not a big business. It's a a big business for very few people and it could be eliminated. And I mean, I, I think it should be priority number one for every government. Like I said, it should be prosecuted like we prosecute drugs and um, and you know, there is much less of an addictive, uh, much less of a market for this thing. It's not as addictive as, uh, as drugs. So it's a lot easier to stamp out. Now, 
as humans, we're increasing the temperature of, of the earth. We're changing migratory patterns of, of animals. And you've, you've shown in your TED Talk and in your research that that had a direct impact on how bad the Spanish flu was. Right now at this moment, what are some patterns that you're seeing? And I'm, I'll say this, aside from ticks, because I saw that in the talk and I've, I've read about it. Aside from ticks, what are some patterns of um, animal behavior that are changing that really worry you right now? Uh, well, animal behavior, uh, insect behavior, uh, perhaps we should start there because uh, it's just the, the vectors are more common. We all know them. Um, the, the mosquito uh, range uh, for several uh, you know, mosquitoes that carry certain diseases that we know are uh, essentially global pandemics at this time. Uh, dengue fever, Zika. Uh, the, the range for those mosquitoes, that is how far they can reach from their normal area where they live, has gone way, way north, reaching as far as Maine. So uh, Zika used to be a tropical disease. Dengue fever used to be a tropical disease. We now are at risk of those diseases actually reaching places like New York City, like uh, Boston. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the East Coast, so I'm thinking about New York City and Boston, but think about the latitude uh, across the globe, uh, particularly in, in North America. Malaria, uh, which is also uh, transmitted through a mosquito, is becoming more common uh, and is, is expected to be essentially endemic again in Europe. I gave an interview to the Financial Times about this a couple of years ago. Um uh, with Oliver Barnes, and we looked at, you know, basically reviewed all the article, all the research on this, and we expect that it will reach um, basically the shores of Britain easily. Um, and you know, currently malaria was stamped out of Europe, uh, we, we think, but in fact, it isn't. Uh, it, it'll, it'll reach north. Um, uh, animal patterns i think you can see you know in terms of diseases i think you know those are those are three major ones uh that are current pandemics uh, malaria still kills more people than most diseases around the world today um cholera is going to become more of an issue uh, all studies show that because of the increase in temperature of the oceans as well as uh, changes in the uh, salinity, how salty the ocean is, and also uh, changes in the pH, how acidic the ocean is, uh, particularly on coasts, the risk of cholera is going to increase uh, in the next uh, 20 to 50 years. And so uh, it's not only that when a hurricane comes, uh, it will mix the water you know, that you drink with uh, sewer water where it could be contaminated with cholera, but it's also that cholera actually will live uh, in ocean water. And, you know, a person exposed to that ocean water uh, or, um, you know, water, a water reserve that's exposed to that ocean water may become contaminated with cholera. And then we have an outbreak. And cholera can kill you in twenty-four hours. Um, so we, we can. It's a you know we, we can we can 
fight it with with drugs, but it can actually be fatal and is fa- fatal in many countries of the world, uh, India in particular, as a cholera problem. So that's another one. Uh, so there are several emerging infectious diseases. Uh, these are the ones that we know and we kind of know how to fight. Um, another one is bubonic plague. Uh, I just reviewed another article on that. Uh, there are at least two communities where bubonic plague has been found to be antibiotic resistant. So, uh, yeah, so bubonic plague is one of the diseases that are really your nightmare scenario. Uh, because it is, it has evolved with humans for more than 2,000 years. We, we, we think uh, as much as 10,000 years and more, perhaps. And it, it, it has evolved side by side with humans. It, is a, you know, it lives in rodents, but uh, it's killed more humans than we think. We think more humans than any other disease over the millennia. Wow. And... You know, once antibiotics came along, uh, bye-bye bubonic plague. Uh, there, that was not, it's a bacterium, so you can kill out antibiotics. Unfortunately, because of our patterns of behavior in the world and the way that we live, uh, using a ton of antibiotics in the way that, you know, in the way we grow meat, and uh, the way that we even just cure people with too many antibiotics, uh, we are flushing all those antibiotics in the water that end up basically all in the same place. Um, so, and and uh, bacteria can be exposed to those antibiotics and become antibiotic resistant, right? It's like uh, it's like sending um, you know sending all the b- bacteria to boot camp. Uh, now, not all not all bacteria are going to become Navy SEALs, but some of them are. And those are going to be your nightmare bacteria. And the bubonic plague, there are, as shown in at least two studies, um, Madagascar and I think the Central African Republic, but I could be wrong uh, on the second one, to be antibiotic resistant in two particular communities. If that disease were to become um, a global pandemic, because plague can be, in fact, become uh, transmissible from human to human uh, through coughing, uh, then we have a serious problem because we won't be able to to treat it like we treat normal, normal, non-antibiotic resistant uh, bubonic plague. And, um, you know, I've worked on the second and third, on the first and second pandemics, which were both uh, bubonic plague. And uh, we're, think, you know, the death rates there were 40 to 50%, not 6%, 1%. You're looking at massive, you know, uh, civilization ending events. Uh, So I don't want to be a doomer, uh, but, you know, these are possibilities. Uh, We're looking at them in in several studies and you know we have evidence that they occurred that there were victims who died so we're not dreaming them it's not fuzzy math there is a person two two people three people ten people who actually experienced this so can it become a uh, a global pandemic my answer is absolutely yes 
and people are like, well, you know, but this is Madagascar. It's on the other side of the world. It's not our problem. Mm. You know what the largest concentration uh, of um, bubonic plague, uh, where the largest concentration, proved concentration of bubonic plague is in the developed world? Four corners area in the United States. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, yeah. Why is that? Rodents that live, that uh, have that, uh, that, that, yeah, so it's, in fact, in the U.S. Southwest, there is a very well-known uh, existing population of rodents that carry bubonic plague. And, you know, I, occasionally, I just for fun, I go to Instagram and and uh, Google, uh, you know, and search for um, um, prairie dogs because they're prairie, the prairie dogs are in particular the carriers. And I, I see these photos of people uh, cuddling prairie yeah. dogs. <laughs> And they're like somewhere in, in, in that area. I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, oh, my God. And, you know, because we use so much antibiotic, so, so many antibiotics in, U, in the U.S. for meat produ- production, uh, how long is it going to take for these two problems to meet, uh, no pun intended, and then create a, a pandemic? I don't know. I hope never. Uh, but um, we have several grants and several uh, uh, groups that I'm involved with where we are, in fact, looking at this problem. Well, Alex, before I let you go, I have to ask, maybe we can end on a high note. Are, <laughs> are humans doing anything? Are we producing any sort of byproducts that are positive to the atmosphere? Or is it all negative, the the byproduct of, of human life in 2023? There was a study recently that showed how trees actually produce chemicals that, um, I'm sorry, I'm not a, um, a tree ecologist, you know, I'm, I'm not a botanist, so I don't know, uh, I don't recall exactly what the chemicals were or the species were. But essentially, um, the, the, the trees were producing chemicals that cooled the atmosphere uh more than just uh you know capturing carbon from the atmosphere and and so all the efforts that there are out there to plant a billion trees or whatever it is and you know all the efforts to reforest uh abandoned farmland or areas that were inhabited no longer inhabited or exploited no longer exploited uh, are in fact uh, possibly contributing to cooling the atmosphere more than just the, you know capturing uh, the carbon. The complexity of nature, as I said in my TED talk, is way beyond what our brains can comprehend, and we only really you know try to see and solve problems that are far simpler than nature um, is. And we usually try to solve them for humans rather than for nature. And that's why we think we, I think we should solve for nature and everybody else is, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't try to solve for the five people who want to get off the, the sinking boat, try to fix the boat. So Alex, I can't thank you enough for coming on. If folks want to learn more about your research or even get a hold of your data, how could they do that? 
Oh, I mean, I hate to say this, uh, uh, but uh, I'm going to quote William Shatner and say, Google me. Uh, it's you, you can find me at Nature of Alex, Nature of Alex, all one word, uh, on uh, Instagram. Uh, and uh, that's basically where I uh, connect with people the most. Uh, my website is on there as well. But Nature of Alex, one word. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.